seated. My name is Kent. I'm a pastor here at Soma. And as Tayshon said, we're back in Exodus. If you've been with us, we uh, spend a lot of time in Exodus, and then we take breaks for some spiritual formation series, and then we come back to Exodus. So we are back in for a handful more weeks. Exodus 15 is where we are starting today. I'll read it, 1 through 21. Subtitle might say the Song of Moses. This is also called the Song of Miriam, the Song of Moses and Miriam, the Song of the Redeemed. It has a lot of titles. Starting in verse 1. Page 57, by the way, in the Black Bible, at least my Black Bible. Then Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord, saying, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him, my Father's God, and I will exalt him. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name, or Yahweh is his name. Pharaoh's chariots and his hosts can, uh, he cast into the sea, and uh, his chosen officers were sunk into the Red Sea. The floods covered them. They went down from their depths like a stone. Your right hand, O Lord, gracious in power. Your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. And the greatness of your majesty, you overthrow your adversaries. You send out your fury. It consumes them like stubble. At the blast of your nostrils, the waters piled up. The floods stood up in a heap. The deeps congealed in the heart of the sea. The enemy said, I will pursue. I will overtake. I will divide the spoil. My desire shall have its fill of them. I will draw my sword. My hand shall destroy them. You blew with your wind. The sea covered them. They sank like lead in the mighty waters. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? You stretched out your right hand. The earth swallowed them. You have led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed. You have guided them by your strength to your holy abode. The peoples have heard. They tremble. Pangs have seized the inhabitants of Philistia. Now are the chiefs in Edom dismayed. Trembling seizes the leaders of Moab, and all the inhabitants of Canaan have melted away. Terror and dread fall upon them. Because of the greatness of your arm, they are still as a stone to your people, O Lord, pass by, till the people pass by by whom you have purchased. You will bring them in and plant them on your own mountain, the place, O Lord, which you have made for your abode, the sanctuary, O Lord, which, you have, which your hands have established. The Lord will reign forever and ever. And when the horses of Pharaoh with his chariots and his horsemen went into the sea, the Lord brought back the waters of the sea upon them. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground in the midst of the sea. Then Miriam, the prophetess, the sister of Aaron, took a tambourine in her hand, and all the women went out after her with tambourines and dancing, and Miriam sang to them, Sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. So jumping back into Exodus, this is actually a really perfect text to do that because it does two things. One is it does a recap of the biggest moment of Exodus thus far, the crossing of the Red Sea and the destruction of Pharaoh in Egypt. And two, it transitions us from the first part of the book into what will be the second part, or if the first part is getting Israel out of Egypt, then the second half is marked by getting Egypt out of Israel. And you have 
again, just for those who may or not be as familiar, or even if you are, kind of just like continually thinking of the context, from the first 14 chapters, we have a story of a people that find themselves enslaved, and not just enslaved in kind of a, oh, like they're doing some hard work, but in a persecuted, this people is the most powerful nation in the world, and it's attempting genocide of their sons by every firstborn son into the Nile River kind of enslavement. And they cry out to God, and God, who has established himself as Yahweh in Genesis, says, I will show you who I am. I will show you my name, Yahweh. And in that moment, he's not revealing to them new information, but revealing a new way to relate to him. He said, hey, your forefathers knew me as Yahweh, the maker of promises, but you're going to get to know me as Yahweh, the fulfiller and keeper of everything that I've promised. And so he receives the cries. He comes down and frees his people through magnificent plagues, which are very targeted to strike at the heart of the Egyptian gods. Not only to shake the Egyptians' faith in them, but to shake Israel's faith in them, who had been enslaved to a people for over 400 years. You tend to pick up some customs. And so he shows that, hey, all 10 of these gods and all the lesser gods that represent, sit under them, have nothing on me. And then Pharaoh relents, lets the people go at threat of his own death, him thinking himself to be a god. And then he turns around and decides, I'm going to chase down my slaves. I mean, you kind of get used to a way of life when you're sitting at the top of an oppression heap. And so in that moment of realization, sobriety, holy cow, we have to go get our own ice cold drinks right now. He decides to chase them down, and they get pinned up against the Red Sea. And untrained men, women, and children are sitting backs pinned to a Red Sea, hopeless. And in that moment, God does not like the, oh, hey, I planted this whole way of survival way back earlier in the story, and now I'm going to show it to you. But rather, he does what nobody's looking for. Winds begin to blow, and a sea parts into two parts. It's really cliche to think about because it's just so woven into our stories and culture. But if you really think about what that would have been, really think about walking through that and then it collapsing on the Egyptians as they attempt to follow, fully and forever freeing them. Because just like your experience of slavery and mine, typically through our sinful and addictive behaviors, our slave masters don't really give up until they're destroyed. And then, right after that narratively told, as I just recounted for you, in Exodus 14, you get Exodus 15, which probably is not written directly after this moment. I mean, that's why you even have that ending title or that ending moment where it says, hey, by the way, let me remind you of the events of which we are writing the song, where if this was immediately following Exodus 14 in its original form, you wouldn't need that reminder of events. But most likely, this is a song that developed over years of history. It even now looks back and, and fills in details that they didn't know at that moment. Hey, we passed through all these lands and you quieted all the nations around us. 
but it's telling the exact same story. And you're like, at this point, like, why did we decide to go and pop this thing back in Exodus and make it Exodus 15 right next to Exodus 14? We just read this, and now we're seeing it right uh, immediately, like, played out in narrative, or not just narrative, but now poetic form. And, of course, we just came out of a spiritual formation scripture series in which we talk about 33% of your Bible, one out of every three verses, is poetry. Because there's some things you can't explore in narrative. There's some things you need an artistic expression such as poetry to fully scratch the surface of or even get at the mysterious nature of it all. I mean, you just see repetition of phrases, spinning of ideas, imagery as in God's nostrils blowing back the waters, it crashing down, him tossing enemies into the sea. It's meant to have imagery. It's meant to have repetition. It's meant to re-look at something in a different way. And by turning the diamond over a few more directions, you can see things that you didn't get from just hearing the bedtime story version of it. But more importantly than it being a poem, it's a song. Which is already like, I mean, a lot of us, like, when it comes to poetry, you're like, I'm out, not my thing. And then we, like, make it a song, and you're like, double out. And it's because, like, generally in culture, we like music. Like, we, most of us, I'm guessing, have subscribed to at least one source of pretty much every song in the world now in your pocket. Or you deal with ads and shuffle play, and that's fine. That's cool, too. And either way, you do that or you just communities of people will get together and will have watched a show more or less American Idol, regardless of the title, for the last 20 years. And before that, it was Star Search and American Bandstand or whatever. There's something in us that just says, I w- there's something worth hearing a voice worth hearing. But when it comes to our own experience of singing particularly here in this space, like in this room, like what we just did and what we'll do. This is a very self-conscious moment in, in our church life together. And we're going to talk about what we did and what we're going to do here in a little bit. We get a little bit more squeamish. We get a little bit less generous with vocal performance because, I don't know, I mean, maybe it's because you just realize if you sing in public, a lot of times you're just sitting here being like, this is a lose-lose situation. If you're bad, then we now all are bad. And... We have, whether we do it publicly there out of just our sarcastic cultural moment or we decide to just do it in our heads and later when you're not around talk about how bad of a singer you are, we, you know eventually that's going to happen. But if you're really good, then everybody kind of sits around like, well, what does this person think that they have to prove? Like, what do they think, like, who do they think they are coming and sitting in the back like you thought you were just in the back so we could all hear you? Yeah, thank you, Mariah or Whitney or the other singers that Beyonce wishes she could be. <laughs> and she has dreams of being Mariah and Whitney, and in those dreams they say, mm-mm. And, and regardless... It's just the point where, like, I just feel weird about the public moment of singing. Maybe you're like, I sing in the shower, or maybe you're just like, I just don't sing. That's just not my thing. And you could say to yourself, okay, why spend a time? In fact, I'm going to spend the entirety of the sermon on this concept from this text. I think one of the biggest things that we draw out of it is God's desire for you to be a singing person and us to be a singing people. I think it's why he includes Exodus 15 in the text. 
You'd be like, well, is God really that big on singing? Like, it's a lighthearted, when I feel good, a child activity. Like, when you think of, like, singing songs, you think of childhood and nursery rhymes and lullabies and whimsical singing of innocence. And that's true. In fact, uh, my son, my youngest son, Quinn, is one who just lightheartedly sings all the time. He just breaks into song. As of late, get this, if I'm lying, I'm frying. His song of choice, Jesus Loves Me, which is the ultimate pastor win. I, uh, you just like, you're out in public and all of a sudden your kids break into a chorus of Jesus Loves Me and you're just going to be like, I'm a pastor. And if you come to our church, I could help your kids too, maybe. Um, but regardless, there's something beautiful about that And then you get the whole idea that actually in the scripture, scripturally speaking, God doesn't take singing as silly or trivial at all. In fact, there's 400 references in your scriptures to singing. There are 50 commands in your scriptures to sing, which is entertaining when you like think of commands. I mean, when people think of commands, they think of like the don't steal, don't kill, don't commit adultery, all the don'ts. They rarely think of the 50 commands to sing. People talk about, oh man, that's your Bible's just loaded with commands. Yeah, 50 of them are sing a lot. Sing when you're happy. Sing when you're lamenting. Sing when you're holding on to the truths of Scripture. Sing when you're not holding on to them. In fact, not only does God command us and describe us as a singing people, he also is a singing God. Zephaniah chapter 3, verse 17 says this. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. You want to know what it's like to be caught up in the embrace of God? It is him singing over you with loud singing. The kind of things that you do when you are redeeming or calling or, or, or wooing or, or trying to lift the heart and the eyes of someone, you sing over them. And he says, I sing over you loudly. And if you want to know what that experience is like, it's probably a lot like Genesis 1. Genesis 1, the creation. And people call it the creation narrative, but really it's the creation poem. It's presented poetically. It's present, present, presented, presented in verse. Everything about it just speaks of like this thing of God taking chaos and making beauty and him, him, it says that God speaks and all of a sudden just explodes of planets and stars and mountains and oceans and animals and, and everything that we know of truth and beauty and grace erupts. But the interesting thing about that God speaks, it's not clear by the word if it's him just vocally saying stuff or if he's singing. My personal opinion, that the only way that God has this kind of creative power is not by him just saying, let there be light. It's him opening his voice in beautiful artistic song that everything grows out of it as if it can't help but exist now because of the beauty that comes out of him. It's that moment, I think, to picture when he says, hey, by the way, child of mine, I sing over you. I recreate you. I win and turn and change and morph you into a recreated being. 
Not only that, we also just have this science that says singing is extremely unifying. That to sing together in a corporate gathered body actually releases chemicals in our brains that makes us feel closer together. But you don't need science to tell you that. I mean, the whole reason that nations have anthems and you sing them at every sporting event or every place that you go out in public is because we know there's something unifying about singing a common anthem together. Or if you are not just a general sports fan, but a soccer sports fan and a global soccer uh, sports, a football fan, if you will. It's, I mean, because like in American sports, we've just deemed like just screaming is how I cheer on my team. I just like that, and that's, that's me being happy or sad or both. And like that's what we do. That's how you go. But, but global soccer fans have actually organized and unified. They're much more historic nations. They have much more historic histories. And they have unified in songs. So if you go to a football match in England, in Spain, in Germany, you will hear the chants of constant singing the entire time you're there because there's something unifying about it. There's something that draws our hearts together. Because ultimately when we talk about singing, the reason that God is going to find it so important and is going to talk about it and command it is because ultimately singing is an act of worship. Now it's very important that you know and that I know that singing is not the only act of worship. And that's why we have always tried to take pains to describe the person who fills a director role to lead us in singing as a music director. Remember Trevor, who uh, was singing up here today, has held that role. As always, remember when he introduced himself, he specifically say, I'm a music director because I'm not directing you in all forms of worship. It needs to go far and beyond just this. In fact, if you want to take worship, you've got to take Romans 12, where it says, hey, what's your spiritual act of worship? It's presenting your body as a living sacrifice. It's presenting your whole existence, all your whole life as a living sacrifice. To them, sacrifice is worship. I sacrifice this as a worship to God. And then he says, hey, I want you to take your whole life and turn that upon God. It looks like 1 Corinthians 10, 31, where it says, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all of the glory of God. He's saying, if you eat something good, I want you to allow that flavor to sit in your mouth and your stomach and those Audible noises that you should make if you're filled with the Spirit of God are going to resonate as a worship to your God. Because you can sit and think about how these flavors combine and how God has provided this, not just sustenance, He's provided you faux gras. I mean, I don't even know what that is, but it is amazing. And if you haven't had it, it's because you, like Qdoba, is like going all out for you. And I'm, I'm glad you're here. And that can be good too. Uh, but there's other levels to this whole experience. I, don't, I hate to tell you about that. And uh, you're just missing out if you just uh, have a couple times where my wife and I say every year at Valentine's Day on our anniversary, we practice the wedding feast of the lamb because we don't want to just get there and be like, well, we don't know what to do. We've never done this before. We want to look like we've been there before. So we, every year we eat out of our tax bracket and it's great. And, <laughs> and in that, there should be an act of worship, of eating, of drinking, of doing your job. I remember a famous story of Michelangelo I've told before where it has him in the corner of, I believe, the Uffizi uh, in Florence where he's just like creating art and as he does, somebody comes, or maybe it was the Sistine Chapel, there's someone comes and he's like in this dark corner, nobody knows about Michelangelo yet and he's just painting and someone comes around and sees his painting and says like, how are you doing this good of work when nobody's ever going to see it? They didn't know he was going to become Michelangelo to us. And he said, because God sees. 
That in that moment, he saw what he was doing is not something to be seen and known as Michelangelo and be named after a ninja turtle, but rather to be presenting his painting and his life as a spiritual sacrifice, a sacrifice to God. It was beautiful. I think who really gets at this for me is uh, C.S. Lewis, who whenever I talk about worship, I quote this quote. Uh, And there's all sorts of British spellings in it. It's really long, but it's totally worth it. And it says this. The most obvious fact about praise, whether God or anything, strangely escaped me. I thought of in terms of compliment, approval, or of giving honor. I had never noticed that for all enjoyment spontaneously overflows into praise, unless shyness or the fear of boring others is deliberately brought in to check it. The world rings with praise, lovers praising their mistresses, readers their favorite poet, walkers praising the countryside, players praising their favorite game, praise of weather, wines, dishes, actors, motors, horses, colleges, countries, historical personages, children, flowers, mountains, rare stamps, rare beetles, even sometimes politicians or scholars. I've talked to a lot of you who are like really into rare beetles. I guess Lewis is your guy. I had not noticed how the humblest and at the same time most balanced and capacious, I, don't know, I know this is capacity, I know it's a form of that word, I don't know how to pronounce it, regardless. Uh, capacious minds is how I'm saying it today. Praise most, while the cranks, misfits, and malcontents praise least. Except where intolerable, adverse circumstances interfere. Praise, I love this phrase, almost seems to be inner health made audible. I had not noticed. Either that just as men spontaneously praise whatever they value, so they spontaneously urge us to join them in praising it. Isn't she lovely? Wasn't it glorious? Don't you think that magnificent? The psalmist is telling everyone to praise God or doing what all men do when they speak of what they care about. My whole more general difficulty about the praise of God, depending on my absurdly denying to us as regards the supremely valuable, what we delight to do, what we indeed can't help doing about everything else we value. I think we delight to praise what we enjoy because the praise not merely expresses but completes the enjoyment. It's the appointed consummation. It is not out of compliment that lovers keep on telling one another how beautiful they are. The delight is incomplete till it is expressed. If that's worship, if that's praise, Ultimately, how you define it is living your whole life in presence to God and allowing your soul to ring with praise, as Lewis says, often audibly. So this brings us to the awkward moment of why don't we sing? And I'm saying here, but also just in general, like why aren't we a people that just like has a natural, light, joyful Maybe levity sometimes, sobriety and weightiness to us that just erupts in regular song. I mean, that's the Bible where it says, like, hey, when all of you come together, you bring together a, a hymn, a teaching, a song, a spiritual song to encourage one another's hearts. And why, why is that not us? Because I would not describe us typically, and I'm, I'm including myself. I'm not outside of here. I'm, I'm, I'm from the inside and critiquing myself with you. We're not like this place that's just, you know, the rapturous abandonment of self-consciousness and the efforts of worshiping our God. We are not, as Tayshon described, a dancing church or the white person version where you lift your hands and maybe bob your knees instead of move your feet. Regardless, 
I would love to see much more of both of them explode in either way, but I have to admit, even in my own soul, that I can find myself sometimes, sometimes there, sometimes pushing it, sometimes, I don't know, I'm just going through motions. And I know some of us are like, well, I'm just like not like that. I'm just not an emotional person. But if I gave you front row tickets to your favorite artist of all time, I'll get there fast. <laughs> if I give you that front row ticket, are you not singing? Are you not an emotional person? Or if you get the front row and your team wins the title this year and they do it under insurmountable odds and as time expires and you are in the midst of the fan section screaming in that moment, are you not emotional? Are you not someone who's, who's given over to praise and singing, loud acts of it even? Or if you go to the foodie capital of the world and just engorge yourself, are you one who's just not able to emote that experience? Or if I catch you and I'm your late night confidant at the end of the perfect date with the one, is that true of you? Or if I just look at your Instagram feed, does it tell a story of somebody who doesn't praise anything? Or who's somebody whose heart rings with praise? Because truth is, our, our praise emotions, our praise faculties are alive and well. We'll raise hands, we'll scream. We'll high-five, we'll sing together, we'll declare the beauties, we'll demand others, praise it alongside it. How good is this? You have to try it. And so why don't we sing? Why don't we lose ourselves each and every week here and outside of this place? And I think ultimately what I want to do is I want to just examine a few reasons I think you see from Exodus 15 of what made these people singing people and how God described them as those who just became ones becoming to song. And I think that they are equally true in our story if we look at them. Verse 1, you see your first one. Then Moses and the people sang, Israel sang this song to the Lord saying, I will sing to the Lord for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he is thrown into the sea. One of the reasons there are people who naturally sing and even write this song is because they are realizing that they are a people fully at peace. And when I say peace, I mean shalom. And of course, every time we bring that up, we have to talk about that peace does not cut it when you're talking about shalom because peace in our minds is absence of danger. But shalom is presence of all things working the way that they should. Society working the way it should. Music being the way it should. Weather being the way it should. Relationships with each other being the way it should. Politics, the kingdom of God coming fully in this earth and us being truly for the good of one another and the love of the city being as it should. I mean, it's like those times, like, I don't know, you get like maybe like 20 of them or so in your entire life, it feels. Where you just like, you wake up and you feel good. And maybe you're out that night, maybe you're with friends, maybe you're alone, maybe you're driving with wind in your hair, maybe you're standing at the foot of a canyon. Wherever you are, you're with your kids, and they're just like, they are acting as they should, which is praiseworthy in itself. And you have that moment where you're just like, life is good today. You go Zach Brown all over it. You're like, you know, 
I can't even say the lyrics of this song, I suppose, and not get emails, so I won't. But either way, you have that moment where life is good. And I've had that moment, you've had that moment, and that is a piece of personal shalom that is meant to break out in all society and be at all times and is, in fact, with the kingdom of God is unquenchably bringing for us. But when you get a little taste of it here and now, of just being fully at peace, I mean, that's when he says, hey, the horse and its rider thrown into the sea. So not just their horses, like they're disarmed and they can't follow us as quickly so we can get away. The horse and the rider are wiped out. The threat is effectively distinguished. There's no chance of them going Maximus from Tangled and the horse just tracking us down for 10 days. There's nothing that is going to affect us in this moment. He, God has fully dismantled a threat and fully freed us. And I wonder how much of us do not have hearts that naturally sing because our hearts are more preoccupied with anxiety, with fear of what's going on right now, of just general troubles of the world. I think of um, Joe Thorne, who's a pastor on the northwest side of Chicago, and he talks in a book, Note to Self, the very first chapter. is called Singing. He's just like, why am I not a person naturally given to song? Why am I not light and, and, and naturally happy like a child when I know that I have had sin and death fully destroyed on my behalf. I, um, our culture is weird in some ways because I was listening to someone who pointed out there's two things that we say are universally bad that not all cultures have claimed as universally bad. And that is hard things like difficult struggles and shame. In our culture, like universally, like if you can avoid difficulty or struggle or pain, you should. It's, you know, it's just irredeemably bad. And similarly, if you can avoid shame at all costs, you should. It's irredeemably bad. But the problem is, is that most cultures throughout all of history have found forms of pain and shame as being bad. But as a concept, they actually find pain and shame is often playing a, a powerful role in someone's life. You're meant to feel shame at times. Yesterday, taking care of my sons while my wife and our young nursing daughter is out and about, and I hear them, I hear the youngest one, not singing Jesus Loves Me, but screaming his head off. And I let it go for a while and then just realize whatever wrong is in injustice in the world is not righting itself. So I go in and I find them, the two older ones on top of him and he's screaming and I stop him and I say hey everyone slow down what's happening right now and they say well he was trying to take it I say no 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 what's happening right now well he was trying to take no no what do you hear right now I said Quinn's screaming said, yes, Quinn is screaming, exactly. You're meant to be his protector. You're meant to protect him. If he's doing something wrong, you come and get help. You don't do the opposite of what you're to do. You didn't just not bring shalom. You brought 
pain and destruction by deciding, I'll sit on him until he relents. And even as he screams, we sit back and laugh. And in that moment, my goal for them was shame. Look at how far you are from what you are meant to be. And I don't just do this to my sons as like being a really mean dad. I think about it because it's an experience that I have in my own life where I just think about past sin. Like those days where like, I don't know, somebody's like name comes up on a social media feed or a story comes up and I all of a sudden get overcome with emotion that I'd stored away for a long time until I decided to rip the band-aid off and remember how much pain I had brought to that person how much I had damaged their soul, how much I took for them because my joy or maybe just my social safety was at stake. And so they had to be sacrificed. I think of ways that I continually fail to love my wife as Christ loved the church. And in those moments, you have that point of just like kind of being a little overcome. And I always have to end, and not always, but I typically try to end with the third verse of it as well with my soul. Which, at this point, the last 10 years, when my wife and I talk about music to be played at my funeral, which is a fun conversation to have. Um, when we talk about what music to be played at my funeral, I still have for the last decade said, I want it as well with my soul. For many moments in the song, but maybe my favorite moment in all the song and the one that I think of every time I'm in that moment is this, the opening of the third verse, which says, My sin, oh the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. It is well. It is well with my soul. And when you think about that idea of not the part but the whole, not just the horse but the rider too, it's the sense of that all of it is dealt with. All my past sin, all of it. That which other people have not forgiven me for, all of it. My present sin that I can't seem to get out of no matter how many times I... I, and coming back and repenting and asking for power to stop being this angry. When does this root leave? All of it. My future sin. All of it. The sin that I am not even yet self-aware of yet. All of it. Is nailed to a cross. And I bear it no more. Not in part, but the whole. Because I don't know about you, all of my sin was future sin when that happened in history. I take a lot of comfort in that. But what about the here and now? Because you're like, okay, I get the fact that like sin and death and that's taken care of for me and great. But the problem is, is like where I like fail to have the comfort of, of what you're talking about to actually have this heart that just sings and, and joy is that I get so bogged down about stuff that's going on now or stuff that's not going on now or my job or my marriage or my singleness or my kids or my whatever 
And it just seems like there's a longer list of things to be worried about by the day. And I think to, uh, to really get the concept of that as being completely safe in this moment is you have to get the full context of Romans 8.28. Romans 8.28, some people say it verse. Um, oftentimes, one of my like, top verses, and it is that, you know, for all things work out for good for the one called by God according to his purposes. And we love that because it's just like, hey, doesn't matter what's happening in life, I can be at peace because all things work out for my good. The problem is, is you often like don't think of that verse in its whole context. And it's just worth it. Let's turn to Romans real quick. Romans 8. Because again, it's like the verse is, all things work out for my good. And a lot of times it gets morphed into like, if I have enough faith, I'm going to see how this problem actually is like last minute, secret exit door or something, and this problem is now a surprise party for myself, which is, you know, that would be cool. But then you read Romans 8. Here's the context of all things working out for good. It, it to take us away, disillusion us, disabuse us from the idea that if I believe, all things will be good in my life. Verse 18, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time, here's how we're starting, are not worth comparing with the glory that's to be revealed for us. For the creation waits in eager longing for the revelation of the sons of God. But the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. That the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth. I preached this on Easter. I've seen that four times. That's painful. Until now, and not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly. We wait eagerly for the adoption of sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we are saved. But hope is not seen. Or what our hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. Here's our money verse. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed in the image of his Son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those who he called, he also justified. And those who he justified... He also glorified. So in context, Romans 8, 28 is not, if I love God, all things are gravy. But rather, in the midst of the whole creation suffering, being subjected to futility, like the pains of childbirth, even as I groan inwardly, in fact, when I, I don't even know what to pray for myself because all of the sufferings and pains that I'm experiencing in this moment, I, I just don't even know what to ask for at this point. This Himself intercedes for me with groanings too deep for words, much like singing sounds to me. And as he does that, then I wait and I am I'm justified and I'm sanctified. And as I'm sanctified, eventually I know I will be glorified. Therefore, I can say that all things in this moment are working out for my good. But that doesn't mean that all of a sudden, voila, it wasn't really a problem to begin with. It means that if you 
could go to the end of your life when you are in your final forever peace. You would look back to all of the moments that were painful or the things you had to lose out on or the things that were taken from you unjustly or the things that you just realized, like, my life, God has not given this to me and I, and I have a lot of pain in that now because death and sin still rule today, that you will look at God and say, Thank you for not taking that when I asked you to. Thank you for not relenting when I begged you and even said, if you're good, you'll take this from me. And if you don't, then I don't see any goodness in you. Thank you for being like a loving father who saw the end in mind. And even when I cried out and said, any other way, God, you waited patiently, sustained me in the moment enough for the moment. Because what I've found is true of every really hard and painful time of my life is that when I come out of that season, I look over of my life and I have less fear than I used to have. I have some of the sins that I couldn't give up before that season shaved off of me. I have things that I used to say, if this happens, I don't know what I'll do. And then God lets that happen. And on the other side of it, he's still good. I'm more free. And I'm more able to sing. Because all of social science has told us nobody changes until the pain of staying the same is greater than the pain of change. You can try all you want. You can do little things. Tweak a habit. But you can't make long-lasting change until you're just done with being the same. You see that in verse 13 through 18, and I won't have time to read it all right now. But you see in this just God leading the people, and we're back in Exodus, by the way. I'm in Romans still. But you see him leading the people and leads them through all these people. He keeps them safe as they pass by and he brings them and he sets them upon his mountain and he plants them. There's just this forever sense. Even though if you look at their life, most of the Israelites' story is not like all up and to the left or right, right, up and to the right. It's mainly all down and to the right, but yet they hold on to this sense that God is taking us through something that we would beg him not to stop if we could see the final product. And it's true. Also, though, they sing because they're fully at peace. They also sing because they become fully acquainted with their helplessness. And you see all throughout the psalm, in the verse 2, it says, The Lord is my strength and my song. He's become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him. My Father's God, and I will exalt him. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. It's going to go on to talk about Pharaoh's chariots and the chosen officers, which he just sunk into the sea. That's reminiscent to chapter 14, where it said that Pharaoh charged after them with his 600 favorite chariots and all the rest, all armed with his best officers. I mean, they're being at a point where they have absolutely no hope. They're exactly in a position that Paul is in when he writes 2 Corinthians. And we won't flip there, but it's that moment where he talks about, hey, I boast not in my strength, but my weakness. Not that I'm not somebody who doesn't like and doesn't have strength to boast in, but because I did have those, God gave me a thorn in the flesh. 
so that I might learn to boast in my weakness. And so now, because he said, I ain't taking that from you, that's for you for life, then I will boast in my weakness because he told me, hey, my power is not made perfect or sufficient in your strength. It's in your weakness. The funny thing about that is my entire life is devoted to self-improvement, to not revealing my weaknesses to others, to not looking like a complete buffoon, which is typically like what the inside, well, that's what the director's cut is of my life. And all of our self-awareness profile tools, we love to peer into our strengths and how we're naturally designed. But maybe a way to be more given to song is to look at how we're not designed and how we're completely weak and what God actually has an opportunity to show that his strength is sufficient for you. Not because you kill it in this area, but because you're completely a mess in this one. And that's exactly where he comes, maybe through the body and other people's gifts, or maybe through his own sustaining hand tangibly reaching out and holds your life together when you are in the place of your weakness, not your strength. Because those people tend to sing. They become those who have experienced, as one attender recently talked about when he was talking about um, a addiction recovery process, those who have experienced enough street therapy, which street therapy, as he described, and I love this concept, I've been using this all the time, is when you are just not ready to go to addiction recovery, but yet everybody, every burn, bridge that you've had, you've burned. And so you live in your car or live on the street, which is fine in the summer, but in the winter, when you can't pay for gas to keep the engine going and keep heat on, eventually, not just a night of that or a day of that or a week of that or typically a month of that, but maybe even several years, you come to the point, you're like, what the heck am I doing? My addictions have burned every bridge and have me living subhumanly and the pain of change becomes less than the pain of staying the same and so they show up to recovery with the desire to change those people that know they're completely hopeless are given to song you in your moments of like God showed up and wow it wasn't just like a neutral moment that he made good it was a if something doesn't happen, then everything is going to break moment, and he does. Those moments are moments you naturally are able to sing, whether that's metaf metaphorical or, or literal. And sometimes what we need to do is be people who encapsulize those moments in songs, whether you like plant those emotions or those memories onto existing songs, or maybe you pen your own. I mean, a part of the reason they probably penned this song was to remember a moment when clearly they had no answers, clearly they were helpless. And so all the moments of the rest of their life where they feel like, yeah, maybe I've got it together, because that's the human propensity to kind of like just be like, well, I listened to a podcast on self-help and read a book, and so now I'm fine. But when they just started at that point of like, I had nothing, let's sing a song about the time we realized we had nothing. And let's sing it to everybody so our kids and grandkids and everybody will remember that when you have nothing the moment that God is waiting to actually show your heart how to sing. Oof. Well, 
Let me get just a little into this point because I know we've got to go. We've got to cook up. They sing because of they're fully at peace. They're at shalom with God. They sing because uh, they, are, uh, they realize the de- depravity of their weakness and the sufficiency of God. And that's exactly the third one. They recognize the greatness of God. The first one, it talks about, hey, God, you're great, and you've had a great triumph. A triumph, as I've talked about before, is when a conquering king defeats an enemy on behalf of his people, and so when he returns home to his capital city, they build an Arc de Triomphe, or from whatever other language you would have it, but those are typically where those arches come from, to have the conquering king ride home, and they make the valleys up high, raise them high, and they take the mountains and lower them in order to make straight the path of the conquering king who comes in showering the riches of the spoils of war that he's provided for his people and bringing back the prisoners of war all dressed in white as a parade of freedom. And they say, hey God, you had a triumph and you set us free, but instead of walking through an arch, your arc to triumph was a sea. And we walked through as redeemed people, purchased back from our slavery, now fully and free from our slave owners on dry ground while they were thrown and cast into the sea. Talks about, hey God, you just took their officers and tossed them into the sea. Which is meant to like, be the point of like, wow, God just took the most powerful nation in the world and just like flicked it into the sea. I don't know if you've been in a lot of fights. I haven't. But if somebody can toss me away, I'm... I'm, when I land, I'm just going to hit the ground running and run the other direction. Because I'm not like being like, well, if I go back and just take out his knee, he can toss me. Like, I just, like, I'm losing. And so I'm going to now use this opportunity to escape. And it's meant to be like, hey, God, you took the most powerful nation of the day and just was like, and like, there they go. And now you like have a triumph where you release us through a sea is your chosen way of freeing us and displaying your glory and your splendor. And I wonder if, again, so many of us don't sing naturally when we show up here because our hearts are so clouded by media or like other things, like epic stories, but just as you watch them, they're really great, but then immediately it's like, what's next? Or epic songs and concerts and epic things. Again, they're all good things. In fact, C.S. Lewis says these are ways to praise God. But ultimately... I don't know if you're like me, I get to a point where I just want what's next, and like I go through it, I hit the show, I hit the food, I hit the drink, I hit whatever that I'm enjoying, um, and then immediately it's done, and then I need to hit something else. And I'm just like an epic language specifically, because it feels like that, of like I'm not even done enjoying the show when I'm like on my phone looking for something else. I'm not even done listening to the podcast before I'm like looking for what I can eat that's good after this. And I found that in those moments where I'm just like, what's next, what's next, what's next, that typically the only way out is to do the work of silence and solitude that we talked back in January and just go in a room in the presence of God and let him become my song. Let him become my strength. And the first five minutes are just like me, like a shaking addict. And then all of a sudden my heart stills. And sometimes I've done this and done this for an entire day, and that was a really life-giving day. I was really afraid of it. But man, when I did it and just sat in silence for a day with God, the funny thing is, is when I got out of that, all the world felt like it was really fast-paced. And I just felt my heart beating so fast because it took a whole day of sitting in stillness to realize that's what my heart feels like all the time. 
but sitting in its stillness, sitting in its presence for just a little time revealed that and actually got me to the point of like, okay, I'm good. Not only lasted for a day and then I was hitting everything the next day, which is why I need to go back to it. Because there's something to just cultivating a taste. Psalm 37.4 says, delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Because singing can influence emotion. It can help us learn to remember. That's why we have songs to remember. Like I said, I mean, that's why you teach the ABCs to a tune, because you can remember it. My two-year-old can sing it right now. And that's also why singing can influence emotion, because you've all been there. You've been at the wedding, and you're just talking. You're not even paying attention to the music. And all of a sudden, you're like, here, come over the speaker. And it's just like, I got a feeling. You're like, what was that? I can't control. Oh, <laughs> And, you know, it just like slowly builds up. It's like, got that sunshine in my face. And you're like, oh, hey, you know. And, uh, and then before you know it, you can't stop the feeling. And, and you're flying out and you're just like, there's something about music that can just lift your spirits. And when it says, hey, God is your song, he says there's something about just coming and singing. I mean, grief therapy has said there's something that's singing. And even reported test cases that self-label as mediocre at singing when they do it, and they do it publicly, there's something that can lift your heart. And then there's some of you that, like, I can't sing because I'm in a position where I'm more lament. Well, the funny thing is, again, that most of the commands in Scripture to sing are actually singing lament and brokenness. Because, again, when we have somebody in grief, we say, hey, maybe you should journal. Maybe you should learn to play an instrument or sing and learn to pound out pain or maybe pound in truths that you are struggling to believe right now. I can't tell you how many times in the midst of crippling anxiety, I had nothing to do but go to a piano and pound out truths that I didn't believe, but I could at least learn to sing over me. As I felt a God from Zephaniah 3 singing over me. I didn't feel it, but I knew it was there. I know some of you are just like, hey, I... I've liked to sing in the past. I've liked to come here and worship in the past. I like to worship, but right now, my heart's just numb, and I don't know what to do with that. And on this side of eternity, you will experience numbness. That's, that's even got a name in spiritual formation in church history called the dark night of the soul. All the spiritual greats have had it. You will have it multiple times. It means you're broken, but not uniquely. And it also means that God will not allow you to be satisfied with the exhilarations of emotions about him and not learn to let those die and just learn to be in the presence of him. Because even just getting the emotion contact high, the, the zeal is really fun. And I can learn to love the zeal that God gives me more than the God who gives the zeal. And he wants too much for you to let you be satisfied with that. And so there needs to be a cultivated process of us getting out in nature, seeing epic movies, of remembering the kingdom coming as a mustard seed, or just recognizing the mystery of this world. I mean, it's interesting that in, in a modern society where we're like, what can I empirically taste, touch, see, smell, you know, just experience with my senses and make judgments upon. But then it says even, I was reading this recently in the, or it was, I was actually heard this on the liturgist, which it was interesting. It was like, what was it? Science Mike is like there. And he's like, hey, I'm a scientist, but you know what I found? The more I get into science, the more I realize there's just some things I can't express. And he said that all of my peers who do metaphysics are really prone to write poetry and play music because there's something that just studying in words 
can't scratch. And so they have to commune with those truths and this reality, and I would say the God underneath those truths, whether they know it or not, through song, through poetry, through playing an instrument, through just dealing with the mystery, not by writing a paper on it, by just sitting in it and letting it wash over you. And so I'm going to end because we just have to. But let me invite you here in this moment. We're going to sing here. But before we do, we're going to practice communion, which is basically God singing over you. Of him saying, hey, whenever you take this, remember these words. Remember the words I sing over you for Christian brother or sister in this moment. That, that this is my body broken for you. This is my blood shed for you. You didn't figure this out on your own through self-sufficiency. If that's true, then your hands are going to stay in your pockets and your tears are going to stay in the ducks. But if you learn to be as one that's helplessly in awe before me in a mysterious, powerful world, then singing just becomes a byproduct of breathing. And so let's have that song sung over us, just in words by someone saying, God's body broken for you, God's blood shed for you. And let us respond in song after them. Let us uh, pray right now. Father God, in the expediency of time and the, um, and the need to move on to the response in song, I just pray that your spirit would be here um, interceding for us on ways that we don't yet know and giving our hearts a unifying song to sing to you in this moment and for years and years after. This is not something we need to perfect in this moment or be perfect at. In fact, just humbly going forward as sloppily and imperfect as we are is a joyful act of worship. I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.